The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. It's Rob Moyer, and my guest today is Roz Savage. And uh, let me tell you a bit about Roz. She is a uh, British ocean rower author, motivational speaker, and environmental campaigner. And Roz has rowed solo across the Atlantic Ocean. She was the first woman to do that and now has a book out about that, which we'll be talking about. And Roz is currently attempting to become the first woman to row solo across the Pacific Ocean. And she rowed um, from California to Hawaii last summer and has just completed a leg this summer. Um, and what I'd like to do in this program uh, Roz, is, is talk about four things. So first, we're going to talk about your voyage, your great voyage, and then I'd like to talk with you about the life transitions that um, have enabled you to do so much. And third, uh, we'd like to talk about uh, what's on your horizon, actually what's above the horizon, what's in that, um, you know, that lethal overheating and fatal freezing that we're getting from that um, greenhouse gas blanket that's around the world and what you're doing about that. And fourth, Mike Dunmeyer will join us from Ocean Champions, and we'd like to talk about the fabulous social media work that you've been doing along the cruise. Uh, Roz, sure. are you there? It, it, it all sounds great. Oh, it does make me laugh to hear you describe it as a cruise. It doesn't feel very <laughs> much like a cruise when I'm out there, believe me. You mean it wasn't a three-hour cruise, cruise where you did a wrong turn or something? <laughs> also, I'm really sorry, but can I just correct a fact or else I'll get in trouble please, from please. the adventure community? Um, I wasn't the first woman to row solo across the Atlantic. I was the sixth. Um, but I was the first woman to row across the Atlantic in the Atlantic rowing race. And that's why some people get a little um, confused about that. But the, the first five women to have done it would be very upset with me Absolutely. if I didn't just correct that. So the distinction is that, that, that there was an organized race, so you got to row with other people? So. Well, um, not in the sense that we rowed together in a nice, cozy little group. Um, I didn't actually see any of the other competitors after the first half hour because um, they were all in crews of two and four, apart from one other solo guy. Um, so they were all moving a bit faster than me and kind of cleared off into the sunset fairly early on. Um, but in fact, we all ended up scattered across a huge swathe of ocean. So um, even though I was in a race, it was not um, a race in the sense that most people would understand the word. Yes. And where did you row from and to on the Atlantic? That was from the Canaries, just off the coast of Africa, to Antigua in the Caribbean. So it was kind of the sunbathers route, close to the equator. 
And now you have a book coming out soon about this? That's right, yes. Very imaginatively titled Rowing the Atlantic. It's <laughs> coming out um, very soon, less than two weeks, in fact. It's coming out on October the 6th, published by Simon & Schuster. And they've done a fantastic job on it. I'm so pleased that I just had a meeting with them this afternoon, and we're planning the book tour. We'll be hitting seven cities around the U.S for book signings and talks. So I'm really excited about it. It's my first book, and um, I've derived so much enjoyment and so much formative material from books, and I'm really hoping that other people will find my book inspiring, and um, who knows, I might even inspire them to make a few changes in their lives, and if they've got a dream of something they would love to do, maybe it'll give them the little bit of impetus that they need to actually give it a try. Well, we're thrilled that you're coming to Cambridge, Massachusetts on October 17th, which is the uh, head of the Charles Rowing Regatta. So people come from all over to row the Charles River. And uh, you're going to be there in a tent on the side of the river to inspire uh, rowers and their families. Uh, it's just great that you would do that. I'm really looking forward to it. I was at the regatta a couple of years ago, and Cambridge in the autumn is just beautiful. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to meeting all the rowers there. Although I think I'll be a bit envious of them because they're, they're all rowing crew like I used to. I used to row in eights for my old University of Oxford, and they go considerably faster than my ocean rowboats does. Mm. So I'll be a bit envious of their speed, but it'll be great to be around boaties again. And they don't roll for 12 hours at a stretch. Well, well that's right, all for 103 days. Oh, God. <laughs> so if, if um, throughout this talk, if people are interested in following Roz and what she's doing, uh, I highly recommend your website, which is rozsavage.com. Is that correct? It is. That is correct. And um, I have to say, I'm rather proud of my website. We really did it this summer. And um, it's, um, it's just very me. And we've got all kinds of social media stuff on there. We've got videos and podcasts and um, you name it, we've got it. It's, right. Um, I'm going to interrupt you because I want, we're going to talk about that with Mike later in the show. But I want to okay. be sure people know where to get your website. And uh, mm -hmm. tell us about departing from Hawaii and what that voyage was, uh, was like for you and what kinds of things that you encounter along the way crossing the Pacific? Yeah, so this was the most recent stage of my row and it's only two and a half weeks since I finished it. Um, so this is very recent news. Um, I left from Hawaii on May 24th and it was a pretty amazing departure. We timed it for sunset. So as I rode off into the sunset, we had... Um, an amazing escort of outrigger canoes and sailboats and um, even a stand-up paddler came out to see me off and there was a helicopter swooping overhead getting some spectacular aerial shots so it was really a, a fantastic aloha and farewell from Hawaii the people there just really seemed to take me to their hearts and um, I was very grateful for that magnificent send-off, although it did then go, it's conspicuously quiet, and all yeah. the boats just one by one turned around and went back into Honolulu, leaving me on my own for the next 104 days. So you rode um, into the gathering darkness. That's right. Um, did you row all night, or? 
I did that night because yes. um, I wanted to get safely away from land. But it was a nice night. Um, there was a moon, and um, so there was plenty of light out on the ocean. And it was, you know, I was pretty excited to be out there on the water again. And um, it went on to be, um, I would say, probably my calmest row yet. It's the third big ocean row that I've done. And um, the conditions were generally kind to me. There, there were no big waves, although there were some frustrating times as I approached the equator where you go into this um, this weird kind of like the twilight zone of the ocean called the intertropical convergence zone oh where goodness. the winds and the currents start doing things and um, occasionally they would just I'd be making great progress and then the winds and the currents would just turn me right around and send me back the way I'd come. Oh, no. Which would have tried the patience of a saint and I am very far from being a saint. um, Well, saints are always chosen after they die, so don't don't be a saint. (laughs) I don't think I'm even in the running. (laughs) Well, tell us about what's it like. You're not in a shell, a a rowing um, shell. You've... You know, you, and and do you, you row with your whole body? You don't have to sit still. And and you know, where do you sleep? And and how big is your boat? And how do you do this? Um, well, the best way for people to see what my boat looks like would be if they can spare a minute to go to my website at rodsavage.com. Um, but I'll try and describe it here. It's 23 feet long and six feet wide, and it's a bit like a cross between, I suppose, a sea kayak. Um, and a, a very small yacht um, or sailboat because it's got two enclosed cabins and I've got solar panels that power all my electrics and I've got tons of storage space on there because basically I have to be self-sufficient for the whole time that I'm out on the ocean. So it's, um, it's a bulky old rowboat. It weighs about 1,200 pounds when it's fully loaded. So it's, it's hard work to row it. And then you row with your whole body. You don't just sit on a plank and, and pull on the oars or something. That's right. I have a sliding seat. Yeah. Um, so it does use the legs, but it is actually much more upper body than um, than traditional sweep or rowing would be. And then the cook brings but you up food at dinner time? It is a pretty good workout, though. I got a lot of fresh air and exercise this summer and lost about 30 pounds on the way across. What kinds of foods do you eat when you're rowing across? I'm quite a whole foodie. I try and keep my environmental impact low by um, eating relatively unprocessed foods. So I eat a lot of Lara bars, which are fruit and nut bars made in Colorado. I grow my own bean sprouts on board. Um, That's wonderful. You get fresh vegetables by sprouting them yourself. Oh, they are wonderful because they're so good for you as well with all those enzymes and fiber and vitamins. Just really good. And it's very satisfying to produce a little crop of bean sprouts. Uh, but I do also have freeze-dried expedition meals, but I don't rely on those so much. I also have raw food crackers, which are sort of made out of seeds and um, grains that have been germinated, and then you kind of whiz them up with various herbs and flavorings and sun-dried tomatoes and any kind of yummy stuff that you want to throw in there, and then dried out at a low temperature which keeps the enzymes alive so it's a great way to go for a detox now i've been <laughs> at the, and the waves get bumpy at times do you have trouble staying in bed or how do you how do you sleep sometimes this last stage wasn't too bad it was generally pretty calm but um 
the Atlantic, the weather was horrible. It was the year of Hurricane Katrina, and there was yeah. a lot of storm activity in the Atlantic. So that got pretty bouncy, and there were some times when the boats tipped over through about 90 degrees. Um, and in fact, my first attempt on the Pacific, uh, the boat went through 360 degrees. So it was a full washing machine simulation, which was not fun. I wouldn't recommend that. No. <laughs> but you came yeah, through with no broken parts. Then and so did the boat. So to be avoided, if at all possible. And since then, we've actually modified the boat slightly to um, add some extra weight into the keel. So it's less likely to happen. Right. And so it hasn't happened since that. Um, no, but also ago. I haven't been in such rough conditions since then. That's the waves then were about 20 feet, so it was pretty challenging. Um, what kind of wildlife did you see? You oh, I saw so much on this last stage because my two previous rows I hadn't really seen very much, but this time around, I don't know if I was just on one of those kind of marine mammal superhighways, but I just <laughs> saw tons of stuff. I saw um, whales, dolphins sharks, um, turtles, and loads and loads of birds. But probably the most exciting thing I saw, even though I love turtles, I think just for sheer unusualness, was mm. the whale shark, which is a kind of vegetarian shark. It's a filter feeder. And it's the weirdest looking thing. It's got a big gaping mouth with just a little bit of head around it. And it just... Um, filters the, the plankton out of the water and that was right next to my boat one morning in fact a lot of the creatures came amazingly close to my boat it was really like they were coming over to check me out and say hello it was i never felt alone out there it was great i heard you had some oh you you had some adventures with squid oh yes yes these were not my favorite creatures <laughs> um Yes, I was just roaming along one day, minding my own business, when suddenly it was like these three missiles just came flying straight at me. And these, um, these three squid, each about, oh, I don't know, six or seven inches long, um, studded onto the deck. Um, in fact, one of them actually bounced off me, and another one struck the boat so hard that it just kind of exploded in a mass of ink. It was disgusting it was a really horrible mess oh, no. so um that was a bit of a shock um in fact there was another uh creature as well launched itself onto the boat and that was um i think it's called a ballyhoo which is um, a funny name but it's this fish with a massive spike sticking out of the front of its head so I was oh really my goodness Ross, i'm gonna have to interrupt hit me yeah. And uh, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come. When we come back, we'll hear about the ballyhoo that jumped onto your boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Sounds good. At the Green Talk Network, our experts want to hear your voice. Do you have a question or comment for our hosts? Call us toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together. 
Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Eco-conscious trends and lifestyles. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back with Ocean River uh, Shields of Achilles. This is Rob Moyer. And with me today is Roz Savage, the ocean rower, who is mid-rowing across the Pacific in her tales that she's telling us. Um, and you were talking about an unusual fish coming aboard. Yes. The, uh, the ballyhoo, I think I'm told it's called, um, is a strange-looking creature with a great big spike sticking out of its nose. And I'm just very pleased that when it launched itself on board, I wasn't in in its direct uh, trajectory because it could have done me quite a damage, I think. Did it impale something on the boat? or? No, it didn't. No, it, um, it just kind of um, landed on the deck where I'm afraid it expired by the time I found it. But it was quite a spectacular looking fish. Is the picture still up on your website? Yes, I can't tell you exactly which day of the row it was on because I was blogging every day while I was out there. So if you go back um, on the... It was um, somewhere, somewhere in the middle of the voyage. Yeah, um, no, I remember seeing it as an elongated, you know, upper lip or, or, you know, or lower lip, whichever it was. It looked like a javelin that had come flying onto the boat. Exactly, and it, that was a very rigid spike in the middle of its face as well. Oh. Really, <laughs> it does look quite lethal. Uh, and we heard quite a bit about bird encounters. Yeah, I had almost a bit too much of the birds, actually. Um, quite early on in the row, um, a, a few booby birds decided that my boat was a great place to take a breather. So they took up residence on the roof of the forward cabin, and they just would not clear off. I mean, I tried everything from shooing them quite politely initially, escalating all the way up to almost physical violence. Um, but they just wouldn't go away. And they're, 
they smell is really all I can say about them. Um, and they deposited large quantities of droppings all over the solar panels on my forward cabin. Oh, so no. I was not best pleased about that. I really felt like they had a whole ocean to choose from. Whereas yeah. I was pretty much confined to my boat, apart from the occasional swim over the side. So I felt it was um, really rather thoughtless of them to, to use my boat as a toilet. <laughs> so do you think you can next time bring some kind of tickler to get them off the deck without insulting them or something? It would take a bit more than a tickler. Uh, Maybe I should just electrify the roof of my forward cabin. Yeah, or a slingshot or something. taking a hint. I made it pretty clear that they were not welcome on board. (laughs) There you go. And I know a lot of people will say, well, it's their environment, not mine. But as I say, I really did feel like they had the whole ocean to occupy, whereas I was confined to quarters. But um, having said that, I was almost quite sad when they decided to clear off. I almost missed them. That there was some company there. That, yes. that's always Although a I don't really get lonely out there. I actually quite enjoy the solitude. That, that, I was going to ask you that because that's a big issue for solo uh, sailors and so forth is the solitude. Although um, you seem more connected to the Internet world than most solitary voyagers. Did that I'm help, I think? as I want to be, yes. I suppose for about an hour a day I'm working on blogs and checking emails, that kind of thing. And um, and I update on Twitter very frequently, um, but I can you know I can choose how connected I want to be, and if I want to have a day off from it, then I can have a day off, and it's really nice to have that choice just to enjoy the um, the serenity, and um, also I really appreciate being detached. I think from human society for a while. I find that when I come back, I have sort of a a clearer perspective on things. And it's quite interesting. There are some things about human behavior that um, are a bit surprising when you look at them with a fresh eye. And so, oh, tell us about the equator. The equator was possibly one of the highlights of this trip. Um, It had been so difficult to get to the equator. The first few weeks, everything was plain sailing. It was going great. Out of Hawaii, I was knocking out days of... 35, 40 miles fairly consistently. And then when I got within about, oh, five or six degrees of the equator, I ran into that intertropical convergence zone and everything got really difficult. And often it was one step forward, two steps back. So I was really, really pleased when I, after many struggles, finally made it to the equator. So I actually had quite a lot to do when I got to the equator because you're supposed to have a bit of a a ceremony where you pay homage to Neptune. So some friends of mine had given me this stuffed dolphin to have on board the boat. So dolphin stood in for, squishy dolphin stood in for King Neptune. And I I gave him one of my forks to use as his trident and sort of propped him up so that I could hail Neptune as I crossed the equator. And then I had to launch um, a special data gathering device um, that the company that makes them, they call it a coconut. It's actually a plastic sphere that has um, a camera and temperature gauge and um, a a satellite uplink. So it beams back data from the ocean um, to assist in scientific research. So they'd asked me to deploy that at the equator, which I duly did. And then, then the fun bit. I had a goodie bag that a couple of friends had given to me, uh, 
that I wasn't allowed to open until I got to the equator. So there were a few a few treats in there, including a mini bottle of bubbly, which I have to say went down extremely well. Well, well-deserved toast. It was the first drink I'd had in three months, so I actually got quite um, quite tiddly and just was chattering away to my video camera about how marvellous life was for really quite some time. But, hey, I was having fun. And I also did a little kind of victory dance for crossing the equator, which I, um, I filmed and we posted it as one of my Roscasts on YouTube. So it was all a bit of fun. It's total fun. That's so, that's so exciting that you actually cross the equator and you cross the international dateline. Uh, when I've been far out at sea, there would be this sunset ritual of lining the deck and looking for the green flash. Have you heard about I that? I have never seen the green flash. I don't know if it's because I'm so close to the water, and I think you actually have to have a clear view of the horizon. And usually from where I am, there are waves in the way. Yes, yes, you're supposed to see the horizon. And, and Yeah, I think that's why I haven't seen it yet, because I would actually time my dinner so that I could sit and watch the sunset. Because you get a bit tired of all that blue out on the ocean. During the middle of the day, it's blue skies and blue sea, and it, I just really, really appreciated the sunrises and the sunsets. I became quite a connoisseur. Uh, how did you avoid getting totally fried by sunburning and stuff? I do have a little sun canopy on board the boat, so that helps to an extent. Um, and I also have this lovely organic sun cream by a British company called Green People. So um, that all helped. Um, I did actually, because I was so close to the equator, I did get a little bit more sun damage this time around than I've suffered before. But um, a very kind man, a dermatologist in, um, in Washington State who followed my blog throughout the summer has very kindly offered to give me a free consultation and treatment if I need any. So as soon as I can get over to, um, to Washington, I'll, um, I'll be taking him up on that offer. Yeah, I also had one of my corneas damaged a little bit from so much light. And do you find you have to wear dark glasses or do you just adapt? Um, this time I did wear dark glasses. Um, previous stages of the row, I've just relied on wearing a baseball cap to protect my eyes. Yeah. But this time around, I decided to go for both belt and braces. Th- that's to, smart because uh, the damage sure. can't be undone. So it's, you know, um, and it's kind of a cumulative thing, I understand, or something. Yes. Um, and, yeah, we, we all have to be a bit careful of the sun. But I was really pleased with the way that the organic uh, green people sun cream works. I found it actually much more effective. I, it only went up to SPF 22, but I found the organic SPF 22 more effective than the non-organic factor 50. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and you must apply it pretty regularly. You don't just start in the morning and go all day or something. Yeah, I, I lather it on fairly, fairly liberally. I actually use it almost like a, a barrier. You know, I'm, I'm white with the yeah. stuff. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. And the other thing is that because I'm using such huge quantities of it, you know, all that cream, it goes somewhere. When it soaks into your skin, you are actually absorbing it into your body. So I, I would rather be absorbing organic stuff than um, um, man-made chemicals. So from that point of view as well, I much prefer to use the organic I was intrigued when you were following the the journals of a voyager who had been in those waters, you know, 100 years earlier, by having your mom read through all the journals and then send you the appropriate bits. I thought that was very ingenious use of resources. (laughs) 
Yes. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm drawing a bit of a blank on that one. I think um, it was what, early in your voyage, I guess. You were, um, well, maybe it's my imagination. I'm just so much in ocean literacy that I thought, wow, you're reading the old voyages. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Rob. I think you might have dreamed that one. I, I could have, yes. So <laughs> how did you end up in Kiribati? In all honesty, that? I can't. <laughs> That's okay. We'll let that one go. Um, tell us about... Uh, how you ended up in Kiribati? Well, actually, originally I was aiming for Tuvalu because my whole mission on this stage of the road was about climate change. And at the moment, I think if anybody is aware of any nation that is going to be affected more than any other by climate change, it's probably either uh, Tuvalu or the Maldives. Um, But in fact, there are lots of nations that are going to be very seriously affected due to them being just very low-lying, very close to sea level. And actually, the winds and the currents dictated that I ended up in a different one. I ended up in um, in Kiribati on the island of Tarawa, which is really just a little coral atoll in the middle of nowhere and on the way to nowhere. I have never been anywhere so remote apart from Mm. my boat. And in fact, I think I had a better internet connection from my boat than I did from Tarawa. And in fact, it worked out brilliantly. Um, My program director, Nicole, was able to get out to Tarawa before I arrived there and set up various logistics, including letting the people there know that I was about to arrive. So I had a wonderful welcoming party. Out of this tiny nation, 300 people or so came down to the jetty to welcome me in and there were traditional dancers doing their dance of welcome. They handed me um, a chilled young coconut, and I drank the sweet water out of that. Mm. That's a traditional welcome. It was just fantastic to see all these smiling faces after 104 days at sea. So big thank you to the people there for, for the incredible warmth of that welcome. And when we come the, back... Um, one of the elders gave a speech. It was all really lovely. Ross, we have to break, and when we after the break, we'll hear more from Ross Savage. Learn how to become a part of the solution, not the problem. Join in the discussion by calling 1-888-346-9141. That's toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. Welcome to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. This is the Green Talk Network, helping to provide a sustainable future for us all. 
You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. So we're talking with Rod Savage about rowing the Pacific Ocean. Roz, you, you were saying you just rode into, into, oh, you were telling us how uh, welcoming the people of Kiribati were. And, you know, they must have, had, it must have been a very appreciative audience. You know, the Polynesians really understand ocean travelers, and it must be rare to have someone literally paddling the way that they may. Well, they probably, well, tell me about that. Well, there, there is a tradition of um, the, the Polynesian voyaging skills, the, the wayfinding, and so they are very skilled navigators, although those skills are almost in danger of dying out now. Um, but it, in many ways, they really did take me to their hearts, and especially because they knew that I was um, helping the world to become aware of their plight and how they're being affected by climate change. Um, probably in the next 30 to 40 years, their islands are going to become uninhabitable because even if there are still bits of the land that are dry, their water supply is going to be badly affected. They have no fresh streams or rivers, so they rely very much on this kind of water lens, as it's called, which is created when salt water forces its way up through the coral that underlies the island. And as the oceans rise, that lens is going to be effectively destroyed, leaving the islands uninhabitable. So um, I had a very interesting meeting with the president of Kiribati where he was telling me about his plan for his people. And really at the moment they're just, their islands, they're reconciled to the fact they're going to have to abandon the islands. And they're really just trying to make sure that they have vocational skills so that when they're forced to migrate, they are actually marketable and will be assets to whatever country they move to. But they're crying out to the international community to invest in them so that they can afford to educate their people with these vocational skills and also appealing to other countries to increase quotas and allow more of the islanders in as they're forced to relocate. So I think they really appreciated what, I, what I'm trying to do to, to raise awareness, to raise international awareness of that, but also hopefully to mitigate the effects of climate change, because it's not too late. We can still take action that will limit climate change to maybe just two degrees of warming rather than six degrees of warming. And that will actually make a huge difference to the impact on humanity. Six degrees, we're looking at a really bad scenario, whereas two degrees is, although it's not great, it's a lot less bad. And that is still achievable if we take really decisive action right now. Well, it looks like we're being threatened by, you know, eventual, you know, le- or increasingly frequent occurrences of these, you know, kind of lethal overheatings and fatal freezing situations. As, you know, the average goes up slowly, the ups and downs are, are much more uh, destructive. You know, the, the ferocity of storms, or the frequency of storms and so forth. Um, I understand that you're taking some actions in addition to rowing. To, uh, help That's right. Learn yeah. more from about now this. on this year, um, well, certainly once my book tour is um, out of the way, my main focus is going to be in the run-up to Copenhagen, and I'm going to be travelling to Copenhagen on a train. Um, I'm a 
a climate hero, as they call me, for the, uh, the UN Environment Programme. And so I'll be travelling to Copenhagen with them and with the Climate Project, which is Al Gore's group. And I'm really just trying to do my bit to raise awareness and inspire people to take action on this. And I suppose that's the point of my rowing these days is to get people's attention so that I can talk to them about this. And, and people come to my website for many reasons, um, because they're into adventure or they're into oceans or they're just into human potential. And so hopefully I'm getting a chance to actually talk to the unconverted rather than just um, the converted on, on the issue of climate change. And I love it when I get an email or a comment on my blog from somebody saying, I wasn't really aware of what was going on with climate change or I didn't really feel that I was empowered to do anything about it. But thank you. You've helped me to see that I can do something and it really does all add up. We can all make a difference. That's when I really feel like I'm doing my job and mission accomplished. And, you know, I've only got a small audience, but I really believe in that ripple effect that as the word spreads, that it spreads from person to person, and hopefully I'm spreading some good ripples. I don't think your audience is very small, and I see that ripple happening, that your heroic efforts to row, row across such a body of water is, is just stunning, and it draws people to you, and uh, there'll be opportunities for people to participate in this effort of going to um, um, Copenhagen? Well, I suppose I do have um, quite a decent-sized audience and also a very engaged audience, but I suppose um, I compare it with the six and a half billion people in the world, and I think, oh, no, there are still so many people out there that, <laughs> um, that need to be reached by somebody, um, if not me. So, right. um, you know, I, I keep my ego firmly in check, but at the same time, I'm trying to save the world, and obviously I can't do it single-handedly, but I'm just doing my best, and hopefully inspiring a few other people to do their best too, and uh, the message will spread. This is the goal of the program that you're listening to, is that we every week try to find things that individuals can do in their own daily lives and in their own communities that will make a difference for a greener and bluer planet. And uh, I love your suggestion of, uh, of uh, measuring your steps. Can you tell us about mm. that? Well, I think the message here is that um, each of my major ocean crossings has taken about a million oar strokes and I think that's a great metaphor because one oar stroke, one tiny little action doesn't make much of a difference but I take lots of tiny actions and put them all together and it gets me across 3,000 miles of ocean. So I think that's a great metaphor for what we need to do collectively that if we all pull together and we all do what we can to make a difference then it really adds up. Every single action counts. Every time you turn the light off as you leave a room or you decide to walk to the coffee shop instead of driving there or maybe you park the car a mile short of the office and walk the last bit or get yourself a bicycle and ride there. And it's great for your health and it's great for the planet. So there is something that anybody can do that will help. Absolutely. Thank you. Those are good words to, for us to remember and think about. Um, Mike Dunmire is on the line with us from Ocean Champions, and, and Mike has been um, taking the lead on communicating uh, our, using the social media. And um, I think, Roz, you are our mentor in how to do it right. I mean, it's just so impressive, all the things you're doing uh, uh, with the media. And I particularly um, 
was impressed by your comment of, um, you know, if you don't, how does it go about spending time on the media, on the social network in addition to your rowing? Yeah, after rowing 12 hours in the day, I then spend about an hour and a half working on my, my blog. And I also tweet regularly during the day. And believe me, there are some nights when the last thing I feel like doing is posting a blog. All I want to do is go to bed. And especially because it's so hot and stuffy in my cabin. And I'm sitting there with this hot laptop on my knees. Oh, yeah. And it's really desperately uncomfortable. But I really feel like it's crucial to my mission that I share the adventure with people because that's how I engage the audience and talk about the issues that I care passionately about, which are um, personal fulfillment and environmental awareness. So it's my job. You know, I, I really find that... That's very important. And this year, actually, I think more than ever, I've actually found it a very rewarding experience that somehow the community, uh, my online community, has really gelled. And in fact, they've started to correspond with each other. It's not just me to them and them to me, with me being the only hub. They've started to communicate amongst themselves. And there have been a few key characters there that have been instrumental in creating that sense of community. And that's been a really fantastic development. It's been very exciting to watch that. In fact, tonight I'm going for dinner with one of the community who I've never met before, but she started commenting on my blog and um, said that I'd inspired her to get healthy again. And she, um, although she's American, she wants to do a hike all the way across England. So by way of gratitude, she's taking me out for dinner at a raw food restaurant here in New York tonight. So it's real fun when the community really comes alive like that. Yes, it totally is. Mike, are you there? How are you doing? Oh, just fabulous, Rob. Thanks. Certainly here and, and uh, listening and, and uh, really enjoying Roz. And, and, yeah, I would echo and say that uh, I think the objective of, of social media uh, is, is really not to be talking at people but talking with them and building this sense mm-hmm. of community. And more than anyone I've seen, uh, Roz has really built this sense of community that the people are – she's not talking at them. She's talking with them, and it seems like so many people were sharing the experience along with her. And it's just amazing to see the, the, the comments and, and how Roz was impacting them as she, uh, as she rode along. Yes. It really has been a lot of fun. I feel like it's actually time really well spent because I get so much good energy coming back at me from the community. And um, it's, it's a really, I think, when it comes to messages about the environment and about the oceans, it's, I'm so grateful that I live in this era and actually have these tools at my disposal for engaging with an audience. Because, you know, I think about this. I'm, I'm now 41, 42 soon, so I'm really, like, long in the tooth to be coming to this world of adventure. I spent 11 years in an office before I decided that if I was ever going to do something more interesting with my life, I'd better get on with it. And I'm so glad that I've actually done things this kind of upside down, back to front kind of way. Because if I'd have done my adventuring in my late teens or my 20s, when most people do, I just, we didn't have Twitter back then. We, we didn't have blogs. There's just no way that I could have used my adventures in the same way as a tool for social change. So I, I just feel very fortunate the way that things have turned out. Oh, indeed, you you would have needed uh, cups with very long string on your road, right? Thirty seconds. <laughs> exactly, I would. Yeah. So is, it's isn't it funny the way that life just turns out, and sometimes I just can't help but marvel at the perfection of it all. 
We're going to take a break and come back with uh, Roz Savage after the break. Are you thinking green? Want to become a host expert on the Green Talk Network? Contact Jeff Spinard, president of our Internet Radio Division, at 480-294-6417. That's 480-294-6417. Or click on how to become a host on our homepage. You're listening to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Learn how to become a part of the solution, not the problem. Participate in the discussion by calling 1-888-346-9141. That's toll-free, 1-888-346-9141. Welcome to the Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. We're back with Roz Savage. Roz, we've enjoyed seeing your postings on YouTube. Can you tell us your sign-off on that YouTube? <laughs> sure. Um, yes, at the end of each Rodcast, I would say, this is Rod Savage paddling the Pacific, rowing towards a greener future, one stroke at a time. I think Walter Conkright can leave happily now, knowing that someone else has come <laughs> up with a closing phrase that resonates with us all. <laughs> Well, actually, it was thanks to the guy who wrote the theme music for the little videos I did from the ocean. He suggested that I ought to have a standard sign-off. So uh, I, I did put some thought into it, and I hope that that just kind of sums up what I'm doing, but also reminding people that um, even the biggest challenges can be overcome um, one stroke at a time or one step at a time. Well, we had this kind of behavioral response, you know. It's like, no, nah, this can't really be Roz. And then you hear the, the, the verbiage that we've heard before, and it's like, yes, that's, that's her, you know. Um, we're preparing for your coming to the head of the Charles on October 17th uh, to the regatta bar, and uh, my associate uh, took a phone call from you, and he was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, it's quite difficult to... I mean, I suppose it's partly because I have a British accent, which narrows it down a bit. But, yes, when I, when I rang him up and he guessed that it was me without me having had a chance to introduce myself. You just heard um, your, your, you say this is whatever. He just heard you say hello, I guess. And, and yeah, Harper that was knew. Pretty much it. He, he knew immediately. <laughs> well, you made his week. It was like, whoa! You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm really looking forward to the event in, in Cambridge. That's, it's going to be fantastic. Looking forward to being up in that part of the world. Um, Mike, are you going to be able to make it there, or are you. Uh, you're DC based, are you? I am. Unfortunately, I won't be able to make it up there. But you know, I'm going to be sure to get onto Amazon and buy your book and read about the Atlantic. It's yeah. Those of us that came to you uh, only as you were crossing the Pacific and, and have gotten to share in, in in those journeys missed out on the Atlantic. So I'm looking forward to hearing all about that trip. The Atlantic was a formative experience. It was my first ever ocean, and it was so hard. I just really, really struggled. So there's a lot of, like, soul-searching in the book where I'm just going, what the hell am I doing out here? I'm a management consultant. I should just, like, scurry back to my office cubicle. <laughs> what am I doing in the middle of an ocean? Um, so it's, it's a very... Um, I suppose what I wanted to do was debunk the myth of the intrepid adventurer. I wanted to say even the people who are out there doing something appears terribly intrepid, have their moments of self-doubt and anxiety. And I just really wanted to make it seem more, I wanted to make adventures seem more accessible to people. I wanted them to believe that an ordinary person can still do something extraordinary um, if they're just dumb enough to get themselves into a situation that there's only one way out of. <laughs> so um, I hope you enjoy the book. And in fact, I am going to be in D.C. to do a a lecture for the, um, the National Geographic Society on October the 19th and a book signing, so maybe I can catch up with you there. Oh, fabulous. I'll definitely be there. And you know, for those folks who are listening, if you haven't seen Roz speak in person, you can tell uh, just by the radio show how dynamic she is, and I'm sure it'll be a great night. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's funny you, you, you uh, chose those particular feelings of what are you doing out in the middle of here, maybe I should crawl back to my cubicle. I used to have those feelings all the time sitting on the beltway in D.C., so there's nothing I could do to get out of the situation. <laughs> Now I know it's, it's similar to rowing across the Atlantic, but with much less actual physical exertion. <laughs> <laughs> and the secret is to go to Roz's website, uh, rozsavage.com. Uh, you can also go to oceanchampions.org. Mike? Yes. Yeah, oceanchampions.org for information about Ocean Champions. And then the Ocean River Institute is hosting Roz on the uh, 17th of October. And you can hear about our um, programs at oceanriver.org. Um, it's fabulous the way you both, Ocean Champions and Roz, you're really trying to get the word out to a great diversity of people. And, and you use different mediums. Um, what do you use to get the word out? Or Mike, uh, we haven't heard much from you. What, what, what um, what's what's working for Ocean Champions for getting the ocean conservation word out on social media? Well, you know, I'm, I'm finding that Twitter is, is very effective because the whole community is built around information sharing, uh, and so there's an opportunity for us to put things out that are useful to people that uh, are interested in what we're interested in, want to know about it, and then take that knowledge and can activate and can very quickly. Uh, bring other people in who are likely to care about this 
and and do things with it because it's it's a network built on action. I think it's very prone to activation, and uh, we're seeing really great responses from the folks in in that universe. Um, but this I is think the Twitter also, universe. Which universe yeah. are you talking about? Yes, the the Twitter sphere, I guess. Um, but also, really, the kind of the coordination of all these platforms is nice. Roz has done that well, and, and kind of the, the coordination across, I'll say, because uh, we blogged about Roz a bit when she was on her journey, uh, and uh, you know, just wanted to, to bring others into that. And then just recently, you know, we had our big event on Washington on Capitol Hill last night with uh, ten members of Congress attending, as well as Roz herself, and. It was really nice to see Roz blog about the event last night on on her uh, on her blog. So That's all right. of these things come together and and and, uh, and really create a nice synergy that can bring a lot of people in that otherwise wouldn't know about this and then can jump in and, and be a part of the part of the action. The Ocean River I think Institute that's a really had good a thousand point about Twitter being for information sharing. I've heard it described as. Um, the, the kind of um, online equivalent of conversations at the water cooler. And I think Twitter gives a real opportunity for communicators to develop a relationship of trust with their audience. So that when you become a sort of an authority on, on something, um, it's, people will actually trust you and pay attention to your Twitters and retweet them. It's a, it's a very viral way of communicating. Right, based and because on they trust you, they're likely to trust. take seriously what you say. Absolutely. You're right, that trust component is, is so important. We found with our, e our emails from Ocean River Institute that a thousand different eco stewards from across the land wanted to write, to, wrote to Roz, you know, encouraging her to keep pulling on the oars and stuff. So you have different mediums that, that reach people. Yeah, I think Twitters uh, and tweets are the very immediate way of communicating. Like I had a lot of fun doing the countdown to the equator or the countdown to of the last mm. few miles to my finish line. But the blogs, I think people also really appreciate because they can be more insightful and more um, just more substantial, I suppose. So I think that the two are very complementary. Um, and then, of course, a photograph speaks a thousand words and a video speaks a million words. So... Isn't it just incredible, this era that we live in now, where we have all these ways to influence public perception? It's just yeah. phenomenal. You've got a whole YouTube, you know, with soundtrack and everything, you know, within minutes of, of you putting it, I don't know how long it takes you, but it's here you are in the middle of the ocean producing whole finished pieces. Oh, I have to tell you, the transmission times are painfully slow through a satellite uplink. Um, worse than your slowest ever dial-up modem. I mean, it's just agonizing. Sometimes it would take me a whole afternoon to upload a video. But um, that's why I really hope people will go and watch them, because it cost me a lot of money and a lot of time to do those. So please, go to com and check them out. And I'm sorry, that is my one bit of blatant self-publicity. <laughs> Ross, we're, we're out of time, but it's been a real pleasure talking with you about your voyages and about how you're taking each step-by-step step to um, make a better planet for all of us. Well, just trying to do my bit, and I hope that everyone who's listening to, to this broadcast will take it upon themselves to do their bit, because I really believe that if we all pull together, we can make a world of difference. And this broadcast is available on iTunes as well as from uh, the Earthlink stations, uh, the Green America, uh, Green Talk Show. Uh, so please, you know, spread the word and, and pass it around. And if you'd like to support Roz, um, there are linkages so that you can make tax-deductible gifts to help her with her expenses. Just, you know, a few seconds online costs her $40 and stuff. So um, every bit would help. 
Mike, thank you for being with us. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.